This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. Based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Hi, I'm Vic Nitti, and I'd like to welcome you to another one of our AUA Office of Education podcasts. This one in the series, the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. And today's topic is chemoablation of upper tract urothelial carcinoma. My co-host today is Dr. Vitaly Margulis. Dr. Margulis is professor of urologic oncology and, and is the Uro-Oncology Fellowship Director at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Today's learning objectives are two. First is to identify new technologies for the treatment of urothelial carcinoma and analyze the risks and benefits of treatment. Second is to facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding urothelial carcinoma treatment options. Uh, at this time, I'd like to uh, uh, introduce uh, Dr. Margulis and welcome him to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Nitti. So Vitaly, let's uh, first just talk about urothelial carcinoma and upper tract urothelial carcinoma in particular, uh, just in general. So it, it's a relatively rare disease, uh, represents 5 to 10% of uh, urothelial cancers overall. Um, the, unlike the bladder cancer, to which this disease is very commonly compared, the management of this entity is quite challenging just because of access uh, difficulty with, um, you know, diagnostic tools, uh, difficulty with, you know, instilling uh, intracavitary treatments such which are relatively easy to do in bladder cancer. One, one, one key difference is that um, uh, upper tract ulcers associated or loss of the um, uh, potentially of the upper tract units is associated with significant decline in GFR in this in this uh, in the population that's already affected usually by um, declining uh, renal function uh, levels. So, you know, unlike bladder cancer, we're actually potentially impacting um, uh, renal function. How often is upper tract urothelial carcinoma localized versus locally invasive or even metastatic? 
I would say that roughly 50% of the cases present with uh, clinically localized disease. The other 50 would would, would be would equally probably divided between um, uh, locally advanced or regionally or systemically metastatic. So that would suggest that this lends itself to more localized treatment as opposed to more radical treatment where we have to actually lose nephrons. That's correct. So 50% of the patients um, present with what we call low risk upper tract urothelial cancer. And all that means really is that these patients have low grade disease. In this case, the grade is the main determinant of oncologic outcomes. And you're, you're absolutely correct that 50% of the patients roughly present with low risk, low risk urothelial cancer. Uh, the upper tract, and these patients can be managed very, uh, very well with local, local treatments such such as endoscopic tumor ablation, and endoscopic tumor ablation augmented by um, some of the chemoablative strategies uh, that we'll, we'll, I'm sure that we'll discuss in a second. So, how, it, it, just localized treatment, localized resection, um, how effective is it in, in treating the? you know, the, the appropriate low-grade tumor? Um, it, it depends on several factors, but in general, um, it can be effective. It can provide um, durable disease control in about 50 to 60% of the patients. The downside of this approach is that it requires constant or frequent monitoring, and there are high rates of local recurrence. Um, you remember that these are low-grade patients, so the, the, the systemic progression of metastasis is not an issue. It's the issue of local recurrence. So this necessitates periodic apotract surveillance with repeated, in many cases, repeated um, um, ablation of these tumors, utilizing various technologies such as lasers, baskets, or um, uh, cautery. So we know that when we deal with urothelial carcinoma in the bladder, we do have some methods uh, and some agents to try and reduce the risk of um, local recurrence and, and maybe even progression. Um, what traditionally has been used in the upper tracts to sort of uh, augment or facilitate resection? Um. So it's, it's, it's important what to use, but it's also very important how to use it. And so, you know, um, there are still um, centers that utilize placement of a double J stent, and, the, the, and then you have to rely on reflux from the bladder into the upper tract. And that's a very unreliable way to deliver uh, any of the medications into the so upper tract. So that would mean using, using our standard agents that we would use for bladder localized bladder cancer and instilling them into the bladder and then hoping that they reflux up the ureter through the stent. Correct. That's, that's actually a very unreliable strategy. And there, there are several studies of, that have shown nicely that the very little of the, very little of the chemotherapy or, or instilled agent will actually get into the operatory tract. The more reliable way to, to deliver any, any agent into the upper tract is to use either anti-grade infusion through a nephrostomy tube or by placing a retrograde uh, catheter into the um, in, into the renal pelvis and then instilling the, the agent um, in this way. Uh, so so when, these are two reliable ways to do that. Yeah. So when you do that, how, for example, if it's done through a nephrostomy tube or if it's done through a retrograde catheter, um, just practically speaking, how long is the 
installation, how long do you leave the, the, the catheter or the nephrostomy tube in place? So generally, you know, we follow based on not great data, but we follow the same sort of principles that we, we follow in bladder cancer. So generally there's an induction course of six treatments uh, of either usually of uh, either BCG, mitomycin, or uh, now gemcitabine is a, another attractive agent that has been utilized. But it's a weekly installation uh, and six weeks induction course. If their patient has a nephrostomy tube, usually that stays in for the duration of uh, uh, you know six weeks. If the patients come in uh, um, to have it instilled in a retrograde fashion, usually uh, an office cystoscopy is performed, a retrograde catheter is administered uh, or inserted into the uh, uh, operating retract, and then the agent instil is instilled that way. Obviously, patients have to come in weekly and have cystoscopies weekly with, with retrograde injection. So traditionally, it's it's a little bit of a a little bit of a job and a little it's certainly an inconvenience for the patient to either keep a nephrostomy tube in place or to have to have a retrograde stent put up on a fairly regular basis for the for the duration of the treatment. That's correct. It's an inconvenience, but um, I think it's a it's a good price to pay for to you know in in order to keep the operatory tract and preserve the renal function again. I, I, I cannot overstress the fact that, you know, 30% of the patients that present with, with this disease uh, at baseline already have significant uh, uh, kidney dysfunction or CKD. Um, if the upper tract, one upper tract is removed, nearly 80% of the patients will have uh, stage three CKD. So um, yes, it's inconvenient, I agree, but, but you know, it's, uh, if, if, this, if this is what's needed to keep you know, to, to maintain the renal function, I think that's, it's, it's acceptable. Now, how about some of the newer um, methods of trying to um, deliver chemotherapy into the upper tracts or, or any therapy for that matter uh, to try and help prevent recurrence? So I, I, I think the, the product uh, that's closest to uh, clinical deployment and has been now used in compassionate use settings is something that's called mitomycin gel. And what this product is, is it's, a, it's what we call a reverse polymer. Basically, it's a substance that's liquid um, when it's frozen or cold, and once it gets warmed by the body temperature, it's actually gels and semi-solidifies. And so in this case, this carrier uh, is mixed with mitomycin C and can be administered or injected retrograde into the, um, into the uh, upper urinary tract. Um, to, and so what, what's nice about this is, is because of the, uh, of the solidification, there is essentially a time-release component to mitomycin. So mitomycin slowly um, uh, leaves this, this gel that forms and, and um, uh, it forms contact with, with the urethelium at risk. And so I think this is, this is a very exciting, um, uh, although in er earlier stages of development, but exciting way to deliver systematically and consistently appropriate levels of you know, mitomycin or, or this, you know, this, this gel can be mixed with many other agents, but currently with mitomycin only. But this is a very nice way, potentially promising way to, to, to systematically and consistently deliver this agent into the upper tract. Now, we've, we've spoke a little bit about uh, the use of 
agents such as mitomycin to prevent recurrence. Now, I'm sure that in certain cases, when we're dealing with upper tract uh, urothelial carcinoma, it's difficult to, just from a technical standpoint, remove all visible tumor. Is something like mitomycin gel also effective for treating residual tumor or is it something that really is reserved for preventing recurrence? We, the, the short answer is we don't know yet. Uh, I think um, based on what we know about the, the mode of action of mitomycin, I think this can be used uh, in both for, for both of these indications. So for the, for the um, UGN 101 clinical trial or a lipus clinical trial where the mitomycin gel, polymer gel is used, um, in fact, uh, the uh, eligibility criteria required residual tumor. Uh, in the upper tract that could not be ablated completely endoscopically. And um, in this specific trial, patients got 11 installations uh, monthly um, uh, of the uh, mitomycin gel into the upper tract with the primary endpoint being complete response. So again, they had residual tumor and the primary endpoint is complete response, which means that we rely on mitomycin gel to eliminate or eradicate any of the residual uh, disease. And uh, the preliminary data for this specific uh, trial, um, it's, it's enrolled about half the patients has been presented at this last AUA, and basically shows complete response rates of rough, roughly 60%, which means that 60% of the time, mitomycin gel uh, is able to eradicate any of the residual disease. So I think, you know, uh, unlike your typical purely adjuvant trials, this, this actually uh, shows very good promise. Um, not only as an adjuvant treatment, but also a treatment in which case, you know, in, in cases where not all, the, not all of the disease can be eradicated endoscopically. Yeah, and have we seen, or is there any data on other agents or just instilling even, this, even mitomycin uh, into the upper tracts or any other agent on residual disease um, and how well it works, or do we not have that kind of data, like you can say, at least the early evidence in these trials suggests that there's about a 60% complete response rate. Do we know that to be the case with residual tumor for any of the other agents that might be used? We, we don't know, and this is, this is uh, probably the only prospective trial where where again, eligibility criteria required presence of residual disease and then the impact of uh, the agent was assessed um, uh, after installation. So I think this trial provides important data. There are very small uh, retrospective institutional series that show that in cases of incomplete ablation, anti-grade injection of mitomycin um, can eradicate or, or provide some complete responses, but the very small series is probably the the most robust data set to date to, to address this question. How about uh, safety and side effects from mitomycin gel? I it was very well tolerated, uh, again, based on the preliminary report presented. Um, there was about 30% rate of um, uh, what I would call low-grade complications, such as you know urinary tract infections. Very few patients, one or two patients, did develop um, intra- um, uh, uh, renal collecting system structures. And we know 
we know, you know, that mitomycin can be caustic and we all have these patients, you know, that, you know, that had intravesical installation of mitomycin and then develop um, non-healing ulcers. And I think something like that can also happen in upper urinary tract, although based on the current data, it's a relatively rare, uh, rare event. And I wonder if it happens in any way with associated trauma from retrograde catheter or, or whatever. I guess that's, that's something we'll never know. Uh, do the patients actually observe the gel when they void? Can they see the gel coming out or is it uh, such a small volume that's injected that they don't really appreciate that? It's actually, it's, it's, it's a reasonable volume of agents that's injected into the upper tract. In fact, you can mix the gel with the contrast agents so you can see delivery of it and, uh, you know, appropriate opacification of the collecting system. Um, and, you know, uh, my limited experience suggests that patients do uh, present, you know, saying that they're small particular matter. Um, the, the gel is blue, so they notice some blue flecks in their urine, but, but generally the, this, this has not been a major issue. So Vitaly, my next question is, when do you generally give up on localized treatment? What are some of the, the reasons to say, you know, we've, we've tried to preserve this upper tract, we just can't do it, we have to move on to more aggressive treatment? Um, I think there are broadly two indications to, to change treatment strategy. Um, there are instances where patients become high risk uh, um, because their tumors now uh, become high grade. And I think in this setting, um, uh, electively, it will be difficult to, uh, in an elective setting, it will be difficult to uh, justify keeping that upper tract. So uh, disease, so great progression would be one. The second uh, scenario that I encounter commonly in my clinical practice is patients with still low risk disease, but very frequently recurring. Um, they're requiring almost constant ureteroscopies uh, and ablations. Um, and in this case, um, you know, it's, it's, these are elderly patients for them to undergo, you know, these uh, uh, trips to the operating room with ablation and uh, installations may, may, be, may be quite challenging. And so in, in an elective setting where, where we have the disease that we cannot, you know, control effectively endoscopically and with adjuvant uh, chemo, Ablation, these are the patients that, are, that, that usually probably will be better served with the removal of the operating rate tract. You know, another thought that, that just came to my mind is, is chemoablation in general and maybe the use of mitomycin gel more specifically, is it more or less effective in the renal pelvis versus in the ureter or does it seem to be equal no matter where the, where the tumor is located? It, it's 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 hard to say. I would say theoretically, if I just have to guess, although we don't have, we don't have this data yet. Um, theoretically, I think since since the since the dwell time in the renal pelvis and the contact probably is at a higher concentration, I think that should be more effective in the renal pelvis. But again, that this is uh, uh, don't have good data to to support this. Yeah, and that, that, that's the thought that came to my mind as well, but um, I was just curious. But I guess as we gain more experience with, uh, with these agents, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll learn that lesson. Do you have any idea when uh, 
mitomycin gel might be available um, for general use. I, I, you mentioned it's available now for compassionate use. Where is it um, in the clinical trial uh, cycle and where is it, uh, how close is it to say FDA approval? Yeah, so you know the, the trial is, is still accruing, but based on this preliminary data, which is, I would say, very encouraging, um, and based on, on some of the bladder data that, uh, uh, that um, is available from the European investigations, um, I think the company took, took, the, took this agent to the FDA, and so it's currently being reviewed for approval. I would say that probably my sense is within a year, uh, we may have access to this. So you did mention bladder. So even though this particular podcast topic has been on upper tract urothelial carcinoma, um, is, do you see something like mitogel becoming a If one is going to give mitomycin a preferred way to deliver it, even say to the bladder, um, as opposed to the traditional ways that we've been doing it? Or, you know, how much of an advantage is there in treating the bladder or urothelial carcinoma in the bladder um, versus the traditional ways that we've used mitomycin? The, the European studies show that um, the recurrence rate, the reduction in recurrence is comparable to the, um, at least comparable to the installation um, of just mitomycin uh, liquid. Um, uh, some of the European, there's several European trials. One of them looked at actually eradicating the disease. And so in, in this case, again, patients had um, residual, known residual uh, papillary low-grade bladder tumors. And again, installation of mitomide, of the mitogel uh, provided um, complete response rates in the range of 60-70%. And so what it, what, it, what it tells us is that, um, you know, in cases of incomplete resection, um, this can be a very useful strategy. I think the, the, the second part of that is uh, convenience to the patient. Because I think um, since there's a time release component, perhaps a monthly installation of this versus weekly um, could be something that, that could be utilized. You know, my last question for you, since you mentioned that, is do we have any idea how long the gel remains adhered to the urothelium and, and over what period of time the mitomycin is delivered? Um, I, off top of my head, I don't know the data, but you know the, the gel doesn't, you know, doesn't actually adhere to the urethelium. It just is just a sort of a provides a time release mat matrix for the for the mitomycin as it degrades. Um, I, you know, um, my sense is by by by. I mean, this is how the trial was designed. And this is why monthly installations. It's by week three to four, pretty much all of the activity is is um, is done. So. By, by three to four weeks, again, based on my understanding of this, um, uh, one would need to either repeat the installation. Okay, terrific. Well, uh, Vitaly, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for this really comprehensive discussion about um, upper tract urothelial carcinoma in general and some, uh, some new treatments that are, are hopefully very close uh, to uh, being put into uh, standardized use, and hopefully uh, this is going to uh, benefit our patients and hopefully allow us to treat upper ur urothelial tract carcinoma uh, 
in a less invasive way and in a way that we can preserve uh, more kidney function. Thank you, Dr. Nady. Um, again, I'd also like to thank our audience for listening. Uh, and as always, for more information, you can contact auanet.org slash university. Thank you.